Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast, five great British horror film series, and today's guest is co-founder of Mayhem Film Festival, Chris Cook. Hello, Chris. Hello. How are you doing? I'm all right. I'm all right. And I keep doing this on podcast now because we've we've genuinely had nearly an hour's preamble. So, so the idea that starting a show with "How are you?" Yes, I'm okay. Thank you very much. Lovely sunny day is even funnier. Um, but welcome to the well, show. I was thinking as well. One of the things that's really uh, cool about doing five British horror films is yeah. that the festival is co-founded by Stephen Shield, mm-hmm. who did, of course, uh, Mum and Dad, one of the most interesting new-ish, I guess, of, of its of, that, of its time, uh, British horror films. And one day, mm-hmm. I will get Steve on the podcast to break that film down. I've been fortunate. Enough, oh, that would be brilliant. I've been fortunate enough to do. I've, I've gone back and done. Uh, I've got James Moran on to do Severance with me. And as I was saying to you in the preamble, I've, literally as we're talking, um, Stephen Volk talking about writing The Awakening has gone live. Fantastic. It's one, of, it's one of the joys of doing a podcast that only I control is that I'm not tied to the calendar of PR release dates and stuff. I can just do what I hopefully I find interesting and my audience does too. I think so. I think, yeah. And I think with Mum and Dad, it's one of the most uh, aggressive British horror films in years at its time, wasn't it? You know what I mean? It really angered the BBFC, the Daily Mail and the Daily Express. Indeed, indeed. It's sort of like, it's, I guess as well, you've got in, in, in the, if you, I know it's not exactly the same years and everything, but if you look at um, sort of um, Peeping Tom versus Psycho, in the sense yeah. that Peeping Tom caused absolute outrage and Psycho was just, an, you know, while it was while it created headlines, it was still another Hitchcock film that then became successful. You've got, um, in my mind, and this is of, uh, this isn't a real narrative in horror. You've got Mum and Dad, and you've got Eden Lake, and into my mind, Eden Lake always plays out like a, like a Daily Mail wet dream rather than a horror film. Oh, absolutely! It's, <laughs> it outrages the blue rinses, doesn't it? It's all that kind of oh my gosh, what's going to happen to the house prices? <laughs> But look, let's talk about your um, your five great British horror films. And before we do, just for anyone that's not heard the series before, the job of Chris is to uh, pick five British horror films, and I leave that what what how that remit works to 
to the guest. I don't, I don't have a strict dogmatic guideline. Um, I was just random. Yeah, no, no, but also what it is. I mean, I've had at one end... Uh, yeah. What I mean by that is politically, some people say that uh, American World of London isn't a British horror film. Um, whereas I definitely know that Chris Cunningham's video of Aphex Twins' Come to Daddy isn't a film. But somebody chose that as one of their British horror films. So okay, so it's kind of like it can be traditional films. It can be you know it can stretch the bounds of what it is. But essentially I did wonder a, that. I think I've been very traditional um, down the line, quite traditional. Picked five British films that I believe are British, uh, and then I started thinking, oh, I haven't mentioned any TV, and I haven't thought of any shorts, and I love those good, things. That's and, good because the, the beauty of what you've chosen, and I said this in the preamble, is that they're not anything I've seen. So. Always, always, with, ever since I've done the podcast, I've always loved to find out films that I just didn't, wasn't aware of. Because for all of the internet can tell you whatever you want. If you, don't, if you still don't know what you're looking for, it can't tell you anything. Um, and I kind of, I remember the two films spring to mind that I've discovered for sure that I bloody love because of the podcast. And it's thanks to, um, bizarrely, both of them are to do with Sean Hogan. So when I spoke to him about um, Devil's, um, not Devil's Readers, what is it called? Devil's Business. Um, yeah. He recommended to me Let's Get Jessica's Death. Fantastic. Which I've never heard of. And I'm like, when I saw it, I'm like, how the fuck did I not know about this film? And, and his other one was, obviously he's written a book about it now, uh, Deathline, the, uh, the most fantastic Donald Pleasance performance. Yeah, beautiful film. Really, like, tragic, sad exactly. film as well. Exactly. And it's, it's, so it's great. This is, the, again, the purpose of this podcast is to maybe just sort of, you know, pull out a few things that have got a little dust settle on them and go, look, Let's reappraise them. So I'm glad that you've you've come up with some titles that I've not I've not had on the show yet, and certainly I don't know myself. So I don't. Well, know. let's. Why don't we start with the film that you have seen? The one, the only film of the five. No, because that's seen. not the way it works. I'm oh, afraid to okay. say. I we go in date order of uh, of release. Okay. So it, so Ooh, we go from, we go from oldest to newest. That's my that's my only dogma on the show. So. Um, that's the way. Have so you got the date? For these I've written. I've written them all down. So I'll announce. Oh, I'll announce the titles, <laughs> and you can talk. So don't worry. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do that ordering in your head. Okay. Um, um, and I've had to make it kind of. I don't know what, in terms of the months because you've got one. You've got two films that are both 1974. So I'm, that's what I'm thinking. I'm going. Uh, which one went into production first? I'm not. I'm just going. I'm just going to do <laughs> alphabetical order. So don't worry. Um, so. Um, we're going to do the five films, and Chris gets five minutes per film. And, and obviously, I'm involved in that discussion, so it's not, he's not, it, there's no pressure to give a monologue here. Um, I have to talk nonstop without repeating any words. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Any, any hesitation or repeat, and you'll be penalised. <laughs> um, but, cool. um, and, and then when um, Edgar Broughton Band sing Out Demons Out, we shall stop talking about that film and move on to the next one. Um, Good that, stuff. That way, we get to uh, bounce around each film with with ease and without feeling that I need to interrupt you and go, right, can you stop now? Because we've, we've now made up a, a completely absurd rule that enables me to do that without, without um, needing to be polite. All right, so cool. I'm going to start. Are you, are, you, are you ready to go? Well, as ready as I can be, I suppose. Good man, good man. Um, right then, let's start us off with Three Cases of Murder, 1955. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean... When you're trying to think of five films, it's sort of a, a problem where you suddenly realise you are all stuck in in one decade or at a certain era. Mm -hmm. And it's unusual that this 1955 is the oldest film. I could have picked Night of the Demon from the 50s or uh, Night of the Eagle. 
maybe, you know what I mean? All those kind of, of, of really great titles. Mm. But this one stuck with me. Um, it's a kind of, I suppose you could think of it as a follow-up to Dead of Night in some ways, except that it isn't specifically a series of, of horror stories. There are two stories in here that have a kind of supernatural uh, flavour to them. And this one, The Picture by Wendy Toy, mm. is the really creepy story. Just like when you think of Dead of Night, everyone will have a different section of that anthology that they love the most. Mm. Most people will pick on the ventriloquist dummy story, I guess. The same thing with Three Cases of Murder. That You've got three directors, David Eady, George Morrow Farrell, and Wendy Toy. And Wendy Toy does this story, The Picture, that is chilling. It's genuinely chilling. It's kind of really well-structured, incredibly well-directed, creepy um, storytelling. So I watched the film years and years and years ago, and that's the story that sticks in your head. Do you know what I mean? And you always, you always think, that's tough to tell. How did you come a, across it? A horror it? story. How did you come across it first time round? I genuinely can't remember how I came across it first time round, but I do remember... Uh, watching it when the DVD came out from Best of British. Okay. And thinking, oh, yes, I remember this. I remember this. <laughs> and um, it's really one of those kind of suddenly you feel reunited with uh, your memories, with the past. And it is one of those things as well. that uh, Orson Welles is uncredited as the director of, of his section that he actually acts in. Hmm. But that's one of those things that you start to give too many notes and, and the other actors would get notes off him. And essentially he would start to co-direct and then take over his, his directing. But it's Wendy Toy, who's the standout director of those short films. She's she's the person, in a weird way, that's been uh, kind of forgotten, I think, really. I mean, she was a, a dramatist. She directed theatre. She was a dancer um, and definitely was going to have a really, really big break, I think, as a as a as a director. But her career went off in a different direction. Uh, and you could easily imagine her doing more cinema. She's definitely one of those voices that you think you haven't seen before. And the story is really, it's really creepy. It's set in an art gallery. It's uh, about somebody having to sweep up. Oh, I don't want to give the ending away. But um, it is about meeting somebody in front of a, a painting in an art gallery who says to you, I see that you're fascinated by that painting of that old house up that path. Yeah. You could almost imagine walking up that path, couldn't you, to its front door? Oh and word. it's so uh, chilling and well told. You know, in the in the tradition of M.R. James or um, any of those kind of writers that uh, remind you of the winter and sitting around telling ghost stories. I was going to it's say a great the, example. The, the, the anthology format allows you the freedom to sort of do the kind of the M.R.J.'s one act play sort of storytelling, isn't it? Rather than needing to do a yeah. full on beginning, middle and end. I think that it does suffer as a film, Three Cases of Murder, from the problems of all anthology films that are directed by multiple directors. Yeah. And that is that there isn't a genuinely strong through line across it all. This one has, uh, as a kind of wraparound, Eamon Andrews introducing each story. Um, so it's, it, it's sort of loosely holding the, the tales together. I was going to say, that's one of the things work. that makes Dead of Night work. I guess what makes Dead of Night work is that, I mean, for me, that that the way that ends the idea that you're trapped in this in this loop forever is is a, is is as terrifying as any of this, as anything to do anything that's Absolutely. in the, the dummy story itself and it really works i mean they've got all the cast together so they can do that that story the wraparound story yeah um which means they've really thought about how important that story is they've had to budget for it they've had to get all those casts together and then off to different locations to shoot their own segments 
it's a it's a big production. But if you are a fan of Dead Dead of Night, then do check out Three Cases of Murder. And what was what what in particular was it about her direction that you that, that stands out for you that sort of as a the, have, the other stories have a kind of jokiness. There's a story about um, haunting someone in their dreams that I yeah. guess is kind of a pre-inception kind of story. But um, hers is the strongest because it's the most well told. It feels incredibly well paced, hmm. very well judged. The performances are, um, are really focused and intense. And it is about telling a story. It's about being led up the path. Uh, to a frightening climax and it needs somebody who's very assured to do it and Wendy Toy's the woman for the job. Well there we go, there's uh, Edgar Broughton just interrupting us there so we're going to jump jump now to 1972 to the satan- to Satanic Rites of Dracula which is, I mean, it's already intriguing because the idea that we're in 1970s London and Scotland Yard think they've uncovered a case of vampires is uh, is already moving the vampire story in headfirst into the modern day, which I guess, yeah, at, I mean, I guess at the time would have been, would have been unusual. It's interesting, isn't it? I, I kind of think it's, it's a film that I've grown to love the older I get and the more I, uh, I see it, I, I start to think, oh, wow, this is, it's really cool. It's really a chilling, clever, uh, barbed Dracula story, you know what I mean? I, I, it's it's from Alan Gibson, who also did um, the previous Dracula film, Dracula AD 1972. And I know Dracula AD 1972 has probably got a lot more fans these days. Yes, you know what I mean. I've, I've, seen, seen, that the, one. I've a, seen that one. Yeah, there's sort of a kitsch love of it all. It's lurid. Um, it's it's kind of a lot more fun, I guess, now than it was probably at the time it was made. Where Satanic Rites is colder harsher more cynical view of the world and it's shot like that as well it's got a very kind of cool crisp clear lucid look to it all um but it is this idea that it's got something going in it that's really um modern and it survives i think and gets better with age whereas dracula 1972 remains firmly fixed at the time it was uh, produced this one starts to become more relevant the idea of a, a megalomaniacal um multi-billionaire um, running a cabal that wants to destroy the world um, seems uh, fantastically uh, rich at the time in a kind of almost Avengers, James Bond kind of way. But now you think, oh, what, what kind of rich billionaires would want to run the world and then ruin it all? <laughs> who, could, who could that be? So you suddenly think, oh, maybe, maybe it's, it's relevant today as it was then. And that's the idea as well that Dracula has become uh, the head of a death cult, uh, who's desperately in, in some ways uh, creating a plan that will destroy him, uh, wanting to end it all. And, and of course, as well, you start to feel that that's perhaps where uh, Hammer are at that stage of things as well, where their, their number one character, Dracula, is there waiting to end it all, waiting to bring the, bring the whole thing down around him. Um, I mean, obviously, this is a time where uh, Hammer were hugely ambitious, um, had massive problems getting finance uh, sorted out. Um, we're about to do stuff like uh, Seven Golden Vampires um, and have those kind of uh, sort of experiments into, into finding new marketplaces like Hong Kong with Shatter and things like that. And you kind of think there is something really brilliantly brave, uh, future-facing about something like Dracula, uh, Satanic Rites of Dracula, where you kind of think this is a, a film that risks a lot with the character. 
it creates this political cabal of uh, businessmen and uh, military uh, and politicians who all want to fall in with their mysterious benefactor because of the power that he gives them. And uh, I find it really sinister and really provocative. Interesting. It's interesting uh, that this is this is a, this is one of your one of your examples because part of the conversation we were having before we started recording was about how metaphor can hang heavy over a horror film when it's not necessarily fully explored or expanded to to sort of go. This is why we're using that metaphor. So in that sense, is Satanic Rites of Dracula one of those films that actually sort of delivers on its metaphorical promise? Yeah, it's very bold. I think the problem is perhaps that the film is too bold. It's it's very simple. Mm-hmm. Um, it does mean that characters have to sit around quite a bit waiting for the next uh, corpse to turn up or literally um, sit, sit around watching the house that the cabal meet in to plan their um, destructive uh, ending. Um, but you, you do kind of think while they're, while they're doing that, there is still this idea of a kind of of a sort of a secret organisation that that want to rule want to rule Britain uh, and destroy the world. That Britain could be that could be that important in the seventies. That the end of the world could be created in the home counties. Um, and I kind of think that was fantastic. Um, I like I like that. And it is yeah, it's very uh, straightforward and bold, but it's also got a kind of cool, dark, um, and scary atmosphere to it all and christopher lee i think uh, is somebody who's got enormous presence uh, and they always used the idea that you could uh, limit his appearance uh the number of appearances he made uh because his shadow would hang over the rest of the events and it does do that really well in this film i think there's this idea of dracula as now becoming world weary uh of wanting to end it all and take us all out with him which, 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 yeah, which would be quite fitting for someone who who could live eternity. So, um, why not end it for us mere mortals? Um, so, look, let's say we're going to jump a couple of years now, uh, and I'm going to go with, as I said, alphabetical order. So, Frightmare, 1974. Now, this is this is one that I'm assuming you have seen. Yes, um, I, I, had, I had a bit of a binge watch of of the director. Back in Pete Walker, yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my my sister-in-law had a box set, so I I kind of consumed House of Whipcord, Frightmare, and um, oh god, what's the other one called? Yeah, that I saw I saw three House of, them of in, Mortal Sin. Yeah, House of Mortal Sin. Yeah, yeah. The houses, um, aren't they terrific as well? You, you kind of think that there's like a sort of when we're talking about the kind of politics of a story. I suppose, really, and the idea of the metaphor of a story and, and how a story is read mm. by an audience. And I, I always wondered if there was a bit of a um, uh, a sort of battle, or not tension even, really, between Pete Walker and David McGillivray, his writer, on those projects, because you feel that Pete Walker has taken a Daily Mail headline, these prisoners are released too early, um, they're not punished properly, they've not reformed, and uh, that had formed the entire basis for a story like Frightmare. Mm. But McGillivray does something much more. He starts to, uh, by really tackling that story, by talking about who we suspect, uh, how family dynamics work, um, what makes a family stay together uh, or slay together in this case. Do you know what I mean? And I (laughs) keep thinking that McGillivray is the tongue-in-cheek kind of provocateur who takes an idea that could be uh, seen as relatively conservative and starts to play with it in a way that makes the film 
famous, I guess, like fans of it have always compared it to other American films of its time, like uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And um, it's certainly up there uh, in in the scheme of things, in, in the British horror scheme of things, as being a, an important British horror film in terms of its impact, I think, really. I mean, what's its this, impact on fans, film, but also on other filmmakers. I was going to say, but was given, given this sort of subversive nature and sort of controversial um issues that he might he might present in his films i'm assuming they must have been the marketplace in the 70s meant the only way to see this would have been at the cinema so how far yeah. and wide was pete walker getting viewed do you know no i don't know i mean it's a really interesting thought is it how were his films received internationally um what were people really thinking at the box offices outside of the uk were the films really quite parochial um, you know, the idea of the hypocrisy of the British church or the Church of England or whatever. Yeah. The, the idea can, of the moral... Because I can see the box set of DVDs in 2018 as a, like, and here's, here's a lost artefact kind of thing. But obviously, in 1974, this was a film that came out and got a release. So it, it was seen by more than just a couple of people who might go into a members' clubs. <laughs> yeah, um... It's kind of, I suppose there's that idea, isn't there, that British films were always received by British critics, British horror films, especially independent ones, in a slightly snooty kind of way. I remember the Time Out said uh, it was better written and acted than you might expect. <laughs> um, so there was this kind of... That's the fast. That's sort of so expectations were low, weren't they? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so a film could be explosively provocative. But I guess the thing with cult movies is that they're never huge. And that's the idea, isn't it? That it's always a smaller band of of followers. But Frightmare seems like ubiquitous. Its success maybe has really come generationally down the line uh, in later years. Uh, first as cult fans kind of rediscovered the film uh, and then pressed upon everyone else how important the film was to see. And then later on in its impact, it feels like, um, what we're we talking about, Stephen Shields' mum and dad, is clearly an impact on that film. Mm. Um, the idea of a family being murderously held together. Um, you know, there is something in that kind of storytelling that is very familiar to fans of Texas Chainsaw Massacre as well. But yeah, it'd be worth exploring how a film like Frightmare uh, was, uh, was received internationally and how a film like Fright Frightmare is received internationally today. Yeah, because if you think about someone like John Waters in 1974... We, we, we can read in the books about how people got to see his films, and they weren't obviously playing in the Midwest, were they? Um, but but, but, they, but they, grew, they began to grow his notoriety. So Pete Walker didn't, didn't have that kind of reception, did he? No. It's kind of an interesting one, isn't it, as well, when you've got brilliant character actors in that, that film as well, like Sheila Keith, hmm. uh, or in that trilogy of films, really, that you've just talked about as well, um, Mortal, Mortal Sin and um, Whipcord. Um, who is one of the great uh, character actors of this genre because of those roles, really. I mean, there's nothing more sinister in a horror film, in my mind, than her doing the tarot reading. Terrifying. Well, that's I'm out of time. time. Well, that flute... No, that was... It's interesting. I mean, I think it's... I think he, he... He is sort of quintessentially one of the reasons why I'm kind of doing this podcast series because I, I, you know, I'm always... Outliers are always more interesting than, than things that are staring you in the face. And I'm, st I, I'm, for me, I still don't understand Pete Walker stuff. And I keep meeting people who, who tell me 
how important it is. And I go back and I can, I can see it more and more. And it is, it's something that's grown on me. It's not something that I've equally, I'm the same with, with, uh, with a lot of sort of what you would call, I guess, something with a more trash, more trash aesthetic than, than a normal, than, than, than a normal in inverted mm. commas film. Um, it's the ones with, with McGillivray that I find the most interesting, I think. Mm. Um, they're the ones where I feel the stories are incredibly well focused. Um, you know, the, the vehicle of, of the story works really well to explore the theme. Um, stuff like the comeback from Pete Walker, I find much more kitsch. Um, and, and, and very good. I mean, enormously entertaining, a lot of fun, but a lot more kitsch. Well, look, let's, uh, let's stay in 1974. Um, testament to, uh, clearly a, 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 a decade that um, that you that you clearly are a fan of, um, and we're going to do symptoms. Which... Now symptoms, yeah, that's an interesting one as well because um, again, I mean, I'm, I'm stuck heard, in the seventies. I, mean, I must admit, this is where not only have I not seen this, I haven't heard of it till you give me a list. So um, give us, give us, oh, some, rush give us... out. First of all, to everyone who hasn't seen it, rush out and get the BFI um, Blu-ray or DVD, uh, of this. Right. Um, it doesn't matter if you've heard of uh, Jose Ramon Larraz, the director at all. Who cares? In, th in this case, if it's a new film to you, we're going to start with Symptoms. I've seen very few films by Larraz. Um, I love Symptoms. And, and the BFI uh, discovered or, or had located the original prints. They'd been missing for years and years. Um, they've had them uh, restored, and it's beautiful. Uh, it's like it's what it's what Blu-ray restorations are about. Mm. Well, I think it's you watch the film and it's um, it's like late autumn, early winter. Uh, you know the, the the trees have shed their their leaves largely. There's this got this golden autumnal hue to the whole thing that's quite oppressive, and it's con it's con it's important. In fact, really, the way it's shot is really important uh, uh, to create that kind of sense of menace. Because the story really reminds you when you watch it of the innocence. Um, oh, okay, okay. And, and with the innocence, you've got that idea of, uh, of the unreliable narrator, the idea of this kind, the kind of mad woman in the attic, the, uh, all those kind of classic tropes really yeah. of, uh, of where the horror is. Um, is it in her breakdown or her perception of reality or is there something really wrong? Is there something up there in the attic? And literally in symptoms, the question is, uh, what's in the attic and, where are those footsteps coming from? And Angela Pleasance is the perfect uh, actress for the role um, of somebody who might be losing it. But there's also this fantastic atmosphere. In The Innocence, there's this grand house with many wings and great halls and a huge open park uh, that leads up to it. But here, things are much more stifling, claustrophobic. The woods uh, are really um, rough and in need of, of being kept well it's it's everything is oppressive all the time uh and it becomes a great psychological portrait where the visual storytelling and the performances and the the, the written narrative are all perfectly in tune with each other it's a really great oppressive horror film um and uh, from a very small cast as well but peter vaughan mm. seems unlikely uh that peter vaughan uh has his role in it. Do you know what I mean? But you kind of think of him as a British character actor, things like Porridge uh, or Citizen Smith, but he's really fantastically menacing uh, and sexually menacing. 
<laughs> which is the thing I find hard to believe. But it works really well. The whole film is set up as a kind of um, a sort of a psychological portrait in the way that horror films can really, really be focused on those those things that we take uh, as symbolic in the genre. The, the isolated house, the forest, um, being alone, being unsure. Oh, it, it, it's terrifying. How, 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 did this film come on your, how did this film come on your radar? Then? When, when did you get well, to see this first time around? I, I, didn't, I didn't get to see it. I'd, I'd seen Vampires by Laraz before. I didn't get to see Symptoms until the BFI release. I'd, I'd okay. heard great things about it. Um, and I wasn't disappointed. So it's a it's a new old film mm. uh, to me. You know what I mean? It's and I'm quite happy and uh, and it, to honestly say that you know what I mean? it's not one of those ones where I can say yeah I had a bootleg copy of it back in '83. Mm. Um, no, do you know what I mean? It was definitely one of those things where now I thought, well he, I've heard of it. I was going to say Jose's a, a Spanish director, and obviously the film's written and directed by by him. Um, but obviously, it's a British, it's a British set story, it's a British story. So, what, what do you think? What do you think um, his Spanishness, as it were, for want of a better word, um, brings to it? Brings to a very British story, as it were, or British situation. Well, it's 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 hard to say. He'd made vampires mm. uh, in '74 as well, a kind of erotic uh, lesbian vampire story. Right. Um, again, it's really, really good, good story about um, about being being drained. <laughs> Don't give anything, but I think he he definitely has a feel for those those British things like a kind of horrible misty drizzly weather being good weather to go and film in. Mm. Like there's something authentic maybe about his view of what uh, Britain is that does come from being an outsider. But you know he worked in Britain for a while. Um, if if the innocence is an influence on uh, symptoms then um then that's a very british kind of thing as well in some ways when we think of the symptoms uh, when we think of the innocence as a film yeah i've run yeah, out yeah. of time no no but uh, honestly i mean you, you've 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 sold it to me and no doubt not a, a number of the people who have got a chance to listen to this it's uh no it's it's this is this is this you you've you, you've you've introduced a film now where i'm i'm kind of okay i think it's, it's always that thing about we, we we do love to be sort of push to discover stuff you know like you know me me knowing you sort of on and off around and then we're doing the podcast and then you tell you men just like fuck yeah this is this is this is the kind of thing that i that i think i've been looking for and, you, and nothing you've said to trying to describe it as as maybe think otherwise <laughs> well the thing that the thing that that surprises me hmm. is when you make a list of five british horror films hmm. that you love um obviously there are titles that you could you could mention, you know, I mean, they're truly fantastic British horror films, but you want to mention ones that are kind of, uh, that surprised you or you found personally, uh, you, you know, you, you linked, connected to them in some sort of emotional or psychological way. Um, and then I've suddenly realised that all of the ones that I've chosen are ones where there's a, a, a great deal of menace, uh, where things are sinister and creepy and unsettling. And I haven't picked uh, any British horror films where there's a huge amount of of gore or or shock. Even do you know what I mean? That mm. the, the things have been, they're all about a level of uh, restraint and control before those moments of horror. They're all about the build up. Um, what's that? What's that saying? The sizzle, not the sausage. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like so. I've surprised myself. Indeed. Well, look. Let's your, your final your final offering is is called 
It's from 1977, so the year that punk rock broke. Um, and it couldn't be less punk rock. And that's Full Circle. And is, is that also called The Haunting of Julia? Is that right? Is that, have I got the right Full c- Full Circle's based on uh, Peter Straub. Peter Straub? How yeah, do you yeah. say his surname? I say Straub. So, uh, I'm well, you're going to say right. Straub. Um, we're agreed. I think we're going to go for Straub. Peter Straub, who uh, wrote Ghost Story. Um, he he wrote it under the name Julia. And it's also known as Full Circle, I think, was its... Uh, it's shooting title and The Haunting of Julia. So it's a film with multiple titles. And I think that that's part of the kind of uh, current situation for the film. Yeah. Um, that everybody is so keen to have this film re-released, uh, to get it remastered. But getting those assets unlocked from wherever they've been stored, kept, hoarded, um, Protected, overloved. Mm. God knows why the film hasn't had a decent uh, re-release. It's well, well worth rediscovering. Um, it's as frightening, if not more frightening, than The Changeling, which recently got a great new uh, release. Uh, but it's clearly there's a huge amount of trouble uh, with this film. And maybe its multiple titles are indicative of that problem. But it's great. Um, Peter Straub, at this stage of his writing career, Hmm. was writing these very small, um, very targeted, incredibly focused um, horror stories like uh, Julia, um, which is very particular, very specific. And uh, if you could see me now, which is another really um, disturbing horror story. And his ability to disturb uh, carries on into much bigger, um, more expansive and thicker um, novels that he was starting to write later on like Coco and Ghost Story. Um, but Julia is a really fragile uh, story, a, a ghost story, um, that has an incredibly fragile, brilliant lead performance from Mia Farrow, who's probably, at this point in her career, the most expert at showing anxiety at breaking point. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? She she can do it so specifically it's it's nuanced. It's about ticks, uh, looks, um, the size of her eyes, uh, how still she is. Um, you know, the, the shape of a hand. She's very um, particular and so specific. Um, and yeah, she is the most nervous and anxious person in the world. Now, the story uh, is about a mother who's lost her child. Uh, and that's how the story begins with her daughter uh, choking to death. Um, and uh, my mate Steve Shield always says, that isn't that just shorthand for sympathy? That's how to, how to get us to like the character straight cynical, away. He's a cynical one, isn't he? He is, isn't he? But <laughs> there has got a point. The amount of British horror films that start with the death of a child and then the couple try to figure, figure out what to do. But there's something so broodingly menacing about the haunting of Julia, Julia full circle, hmm. um, that sticks throughout the whole film. It's almost an art house movie. It's so controlled. It's so much about the look, the space, the image, the colour, uh, and these incredibly modelled performances in the middle of them, um, that you're just permanently in a state of suspense, wondering how will this ghost story play out? And it plays out very, very nastily, very disturbing uh, ending indeed. Um, but it's it's terrific. And it's directed by Richard Longcrane, uh, who I know did the Henry the Third film. Mm. Um, that Alex Cox was going to direct. Uh, Richard III, I mean, who's Henry III? Richard III. And he did... Um, Brimstone and Treacle. The, probably uh, his most famous uh, cult movie, Slade in Flame. Oh, OK. 
Yeah, everyone loves Slade in Flame. So Long Crane's a really good director. He really is a, a good director. Um, Brimstone and Treacle, he did, yeah. So what um, was, how did you, I mean, if this hasn't had the kind of um, sort of restoration print reissued, how, did, yeah, how, did, how, is, how have you got to see this film? And where, where did you get this to see it? This is one of those films that's existed in bootlegs forever and ever and ever. Um, okay. And it is, it is gorgeous. And those bootlegs vary in quality. I think Sony, um, on their TV channel, had a, a relatively good uh, restoration that a lot of people ripped. Um, it's been doing the rounds, uh, you know, since the VHS days. Hmm. Uh, and it got, it got a, a video release. But um, it's just, it feels like a, a forgotten film in the history of British um, oh. horror cinema. And it's an incredibly good one. You know, I mean, it's a very, very well-written, um, extremely disturbing, delicate, uh, and ultimately um, shocking um, supernatural ghost story and it needs to be to seem to be seen on the big screen i think so i know that there's everybody's out there desperately trying to find a new copy of it and to get the rights back to the film to get it re-released ah we've run out of time we have indeed we have indeed and and, and you were you, you you managed mid between options between choices four and five to uh, to give us a kind of summation as to the kind of films you've been choosing. So usually that's oh, sorry. No, it's good. No, it's good. We've done it. You know, it's there. You see, we, people can hear that as we go. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't need to. We don't need to go over that again. So it just goes with me to say thank you very much for giving us your five. Which uh, my were, pleasure. Which they were. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. Well, I'll, just, I'll just run through them so people can have a quick list of them at the end. So we've got, we've got Three Cases of Murder, 1955. We've got Satanic Rites of Dracula, 1972. We've got Symptoms, mm -hmm. 19... Oh, sorry, we've got Frightmare from 74 and then Symptoms from 74 and then Full Circle, uh, 1977. So there's your five choices and I thank you for taking your time. Well, if you've not seen any of those, uh, folks, do, do try and get, uh, definitely get the sim Symptoms Blu-ray and help the BFI out. This podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. You did something for the first time. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.